Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email them at questionsforhope at gmail.com or to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face. And on the right-hand side of the screen, we'll have a comment section open and ready to receive your questions. And you can join us there live every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. or Pacific if we're not on Daylight Savings. Note as well, if you want to join us on our social media platforms, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we make the habit of reminding you, we do not control when or why we are taken down from those platforms. If we are not going live and we don't give you prior notifications as to the reason, we will still be on our streaming platform, which is on our website. So please join us most reliably and frequently on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Again, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. We'll use social media while we can. If you give us a like or subscribe to us there, again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson is Facebook. A Reason for Hope is YouTube. You'll be notified when we are going live, but feel free to join us whenever and however you are able to. We'll be looking forward to engaging with you with the topics we are setting aside for the next hour, which are sincere Bible questions. If they are sincere, they are relevant to the Bible, and they are asked in the form of a question, we will be happy to address them. We'll also be starting with our apologetics topic today and a follow-up from last week's and hopefully equipping you before the uh, season of Hedons uh, continues, and we'll be looking forward to any questions you have on that as well. But before we start with the topic today or getting to your questions, we want to start off in a word of prayer. Peter, would you like to do that? Yep. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our lives. Uh, We do pray that we'd be able to dedicate this time to you, to focus in on your word and your truth, that the things that we speak about and the way that we look at it would all be defined by by your inspired word, Lord. And I pray that all those listening would be blessed by it, they would be edified and encouraged in their relationship with you. And to also be more equipped to be able to share their relationship with you with others. And in your name, Lord, amen. That is true. Now, last week, meaning last Tuesday or Wednesday, for those listening on Reach Radio, we discussed the rise of Christian nationalism, which isn't actually rising, nor is it a Christian worldview, at least not a coherent one. We clarified that those who would hold to this worldview and the danger of it is actually more in line with those who are less informed in Christianity, if not in Christianity at all. Right. But when we're talking about the frequency at which people will jump on buzzwords like nationalism, like extremism, like radicalism, we always want to be one step ahead of those who will We'll try to get emotional responses through buzzwords and respond rationally. Uh, you gathered a few articles that were addressing this very pressing, sarcastically spoken topic, and of course, we want to deal with them on a point-by-point basis. So the floor is yours. All right, cool. Yeah. So uh, last week we talked about Christian nationalism, and Sean did a very good job of summing up what we talked about last week. So you guys can listen to the recording if you want on our site or on our YouTube page. But at any rate. Uh, 
after we did it, I kind of thought it was going to be a one and done, that we would just kind of talk about it and that would be it. But in the last five days, there have been actually numerous articles <laughs> written uh, about the rising Christian nationalist epidemic and how threatening it is to our democracy in America as well as to the world as a whole. And all of these are written to be very inflammatory. They're written to be very polarizing and written to be very fear-mongering, as is the job of our press at this point. No. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, the reason that spurred on all these articles was the shooting in Evaldi. Now, interestingly, the person who shot in Evaldi, as well as the Buffalo shooter, both the, these articles started coming out. The first ones came out after the Buffalo shooter, the second one after the Evaldi shooter. Neither shooter was Christian. According to them. According to them, right? But yet, even though according to them, they weren't Christian, we are having all these articles written about Christian nationalism. So I want to go through this article. This was the least inflammatory. So when I go through it and you're like, wow, that was the least, I don't want to see what was the worst. Uh, this is the least one that I found. And we wanted to interact with it a little bit to help people understand why is there this push of the supposed boogeyman of Christian nationalism? What is it intended to do? And how should Christians respond? Because there are some responses that are just bad. And then there are some responses that are good, but they might lead to something dangerous. And I'll help explain that in a second here. So the name of this article is Christian Nationalism on the Rise in Some GOP Campaigns. And it was written by the Associated Press. I'm going to pull out a couple uh, quotations from the article. If you guys want to read it on your own time, though, it's not very lengthy and you'll get a pretty good idea. Now, again, this is the most balanced one I could find. The other ones are just straight up like Christian nationalism is on the rise and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, this one is a little bit more balanced. It does actually give quotations from some good Christian pastors like Pastor Jack Hibbs, mm -hmm. who is in the Calvary Circle and in Chino Hills, California, and they didn't misquote him. They actually yeah. quoted him in context, which I was thankful for. But let me just give you their definition of Christian nationalism. Uh, before we keep going on it, I want to get your response to this. Is this a fair definition of Christian nationalism? And is it a dangerous definition? So here's their definition. Scholars generally define, by the way, uh, me and Sean are going to on Thursday start getting into uh, rhetoric tactics, ways that people deceive you so that you could be a little bit more ready when you hear them. Right off the bat, when someone says scholars generally define, is that a red flag? Big time. Why is it a red flag? Well, because A, scholars aren't mentioned. B, the nonsense from the mouths of geniuses is still nonsense, to quote Dr. John Lennox, who's, by the way, a scholar of <laughs> mathematics from Oxford. And, of course, when we're talking about this appeal to authority, that is a logical fallacy. If a smart person or a majority of, of uh, people or a majority of authoritative persons, it's just compounding the same mistake. Right. Do smart people say this, or is this true? Those right. things aren't necessarily one and the same. If a smart person orders a Whopper at McDonald's, he is still wrong. For those <laughs> outside of America, if you make a mistake and you're smart, that is still a still mistake. A mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a big issue when people are saying scholars. Well, what's that mean? Oh, trusted people. Therefore, they're trustworthy. Therefore, their word can be trusted. Therefore, what I'm saying is not open to debate. No. It has been decided. Yeah, right? and that's the problem. It's trying to manipulate with very few words 
words a lot of emotional baggage. Well, are you disagreeing with scholars? The appropriate response is, which one? What scholar and what did they say? Right. Well, this uh, scholar who's uh, undergrad at, uh, <laughs> I don't know, underwater basket weaving yeah. <laughs> says that Christian nationalism is on the rise. Okay, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the problem. That's right. So here's what the scholars generally define as Christian nationalism. As going beyond policy, debates, and championing fusion of American and Christian values, symbols, and identity. Okay, let's keep going. Christian nationalism, they say, is often accompanied by a belief that God has destined America, like the biblical Israel, for a special role in history, and that it will receive divine blessing or judgment depending on its obedience. That often overlaps with the conservative Christian political agenda, including opposition to abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender rights. Researchers say Christian nationalism is often also associated with mistrust of immigrants and Muslims. Many Christian nationalists see former President Donald Trump as a champion despite his crude sexual boasts and lack of public piety. See any problems with that? Their definition of Christian nationalism? A few, but I guess there's a few angles at which I could address it that we don't necessarily have time to go into. I guess the... I, for the sake of time and just so that we can continue on with the point, this sounds a lot like poisoning the well, because if <laughs> I'm going to classify something as a bad thing and I do so not by addressing the thing but associating it with a bunch of other bad things, I haven't actually told you what the problem is, but we can get more into that on Thursday. Yeah. The big issue I see there is, again, they're espousing a legitimate wrong thinking in Christian theology, the dominion theology or the replacement theology, which again aren't the same thing to those listening, but the idea that Israel has been replaced by the church and the promises of Israel now belong to the church, including a specific plot of land. I don't know <laughs> of any teachers that would say the United States is the promised land of the church, but I would not put it past people who hold to this dominion theology or who used to hold, and that's going to be key in addressing this. Mm -hmm. um, and basically the uh, problematic thinking that it's not only antithetical to proper biblical exegesis, which is a bunch of fancy words I'll define in a moment, but it's also a problem when you're I guess, conflating it with Christian nationalism. And for those, again, who speak English, let me just narrow this down. Dominion theology used to be a very popular view until the advent of World War II, and it go, brings with it the assumption that the Church will progressively influence the world more and more for the better, and that ultimately the second coming of Christ will just be a transition of power from the Church to its ultimate figurehead. Right. When we to put two and six million dead Jews together and realize the world's not getting better, yeah. it's getting worse. People took another look at their Bibles and realized this is what it says was going to happen and what will continue to happen until the time of the end. So if this is becoming popular again, I wouldn't call it Christian nationalism, I'd call it dominion theology, or a very bizarre tint on replacement theology, which right. again, replacement theology doesn't say the United States is the promised land, Donald Trump is the Messiah, or anything like that. But that would be how I'd challenge the thinking, is to say, eh, aberrant teaching, but that's not nationalism. Right. And 
average. They actually, yeah. in this article, they never give a definition of nationalism. And there's the main issue. Right. So, so again, we talked about this last week. Nationalism is not just nationalism versus globalism, meaning that just as I have a greater responsibility to my family as opposed to your family, I have a greater responsibility to my nation as opposed to your nation. That's just logical, and that's something that we should do as Christians. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if I do not take care of my own, especially those of my own household, I have denied the faith and I'm worse than a non-believer. So this idea of I'm just a citizen of the world and I'm going to help all people equally, that's actually not what we're called to do. God Mm. created us in relationships. We need to take care of our relationships that are in proximity to us first before we start going outside of the bounds of what's around us. So that's very important. What we mean by nationalism and what the actual definition of nationalism is, is it's very, and you can hear it in the title, it is like racism. So racism believes that inherently my race is superior to yours, and therefore you should either be annihilated or subjugated to me. You should become a Christian or you should be kicked out of our Christian nation. Exactly. So nationalism is like racism except for replace race with nation. My nation is inherently better than yours, and therefore we should either conquer you and subdue you or annihilate you. Which, again, is not true. There are nationalists who've taken it to that extreme, but Mm -hmm. it's not either A, fundamentally a part of nationalism, or B, a part of Christianity. If you want to talk about it more, we discussed it last week. That's right. You could listen to that tape from last week. Now, getting into the—notice how broadly they're defining this, though. And like you said, Sean, there is a poisoning of the well, because there are some things that I listen to in this, and I'm like, oh, I agree with that. And there are some things I'm like, I definitely don't agree with that. And even the things that I disagree with in that, I wouldn't even classify that as nationalism. Like you said, I would classify it in these other ways. I think they're aberrant teachings. I think they're wrong. But I don't think they're dangerous in the same way that nationalism is. So, uh, for instance... He says, uh, the first thing that they give is that it goes beyond policy debates and championing a fusion of American and Christian values, symbols, and identity. Should our religion inform our politics? Well, it should inform our morality, and politics is how morality is, or uh, I guess, uh, enforced and introduced to society, so yes. That's right. Now, this is kind of going to get into why this talk is being promulgated right now by the media. There has been this idea since around the 60s when they really had a fight to kick prayer out of the schools that there is a in there is a distinct separation from what they call church and state that your religious views and the way that you live your life and the way that you vote and the way that you educate and the way that you promulgate information are completely separate. Your religious life is over here, your secular life is over here, and never the twain should meet, right? That's kind of the idea that was promulgated in the 60s, and many people started to believe it, right? Many Christians started to believe that that is exactly accurate. Now, the unfortunate thing is, is as you said, Sean, how can you have political views that are disconnected from your ethical views? Well, you can't, right? If I'm saying you shouldn't murder people, and I believe that there should be legislation that penalizes murderers, I'm making an ethical implicit statement that murder is wrong and the government should prevent people from doing that. That ethical view comes from my religious view. So yes, I do believe that my religious views should inform my political views. Do I think that it's a theocratic type? So you see the leap that they're making. A Christian who thinks that their theology informs their politics is the same as 
a Christian who wants a theocracy, a Christian who wants every law on the books to come directly from the Bible, and therefore it would be illegal to be an apostate or illegal to be someone who doesn't follow Christian dictates. They insinuate that in the final statement. Researchers say Christian nationalism is often associated with mistrust of immigrants and Muslims. I like how they just kind of throw racism in there. You know, you're just going to distrust immigrants and especially Muslims. Well, and Muslims want to enforce the theocratic state. So I'm really <laughs> confused here. That is a, in fact, ethno-nationalist religion. So yeah, we're you talking cannot, about this. Yeah, you cannot be into Sharia law without being a nationalist. Yeah, it <laughs> like is this. fundamentally intertwined. The death to apostasy was introduced as a religious system by Muslims, and it is enforced to this day in every single Sharia-dominated country. Right. And so they, they bring up one, again, that I disagree with, Christian nationalism, and you, you said it, it's kind of a pairing of dominion theology and replacement theology. Christian nationalism, they say, is often accompanied by the belief that God has destined America, like the biblical Israel, for a special role in history that will receive divine blessing or judgment depending on its obedience. Now, again, there's a conflagration of facts there. Do I believe that God will judge America on the basis of what we do? Yeah, okay. that's biblical. Jesus says that he will judge the nations based on what they do, specifically nations. about how they... That's right, nations as a whole. So I don't believe... But you see the conflagration. It's... I'm a Christian nationalist if I believe that, but they're ignoring the fact that there's a distinction between someone who believes that God will judge nations because he said he would versus God judging America in the same way as him judging Israel in the past. In other words, that America is a Christian nation in the same exact way that Israel was a Jewish nation. Now, I disagree with that theology. I think it's wrong. But is that necessarily Christian nationalistic? No. There are many people who have that viewpoint who aren't Christian nationalists. So if I were to pull out views that actually are Christian nationalism, I would say things like, I don't know, QAnon, something like that. There are some fringe groups out there that believe some very weird and, let's say, conspiratorial things that are associated with Christian nationalism. They don't bring up any of those in their definition of Christian nationalism. They bring up a lot of mainstream views of most Christians. They even talk about having uh, a view on abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender rights. Yes, my view on those things is influenced by my religious beliefs. Once again, I've already said that. But does that make me a Christian nationalist? No. We're no. on radio. No. <laughs> I'm shaking my head, so oh wait. Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly correct. Now, notice again what they're doing. They're making you feel like if I support... If I support, let's say, taking down Roe versus Wade, uh, criminalizing abortion, um, not allowing for same-sex marriage, not allowing for quote-unquote transgender rights, meaning I don't think that men should be able to compete with women in sports. I don't believe that people who are biologically one gender should be able to share bathrooms with people that are biologically the other gender. I don't right? think it should be tax subsidized for me to provide transitions in order to appease the mental state of those who are dealing with gender dysphoria. Watches where can't cut off YouTube for that. And on it goes. That's right. Now, notice what they're doing. They're lumping us all in with Christian nationalism. If you think any of those things, you are now a Christian nationalist. Because again, they don't give a strict definition of it. They just say Christian nationalism is often associated with, and then they give all these 
definitions. By who? Very dangerous, right? Very dangerous way of dealing with this particular issue. Now, again, this is, and again, we'll talk more about this on Thursday. This is what we call ad hominem. Yeah. I don't want to actually debate you on the facts. I want to lump you in with ad hominem basically just means I'm calling someone a name, right? I'm calling someone a name to avoid debating about the facts. So, And there's uh, obviously kindergarten ways of doing that. Where you're just like, well, you're a poopy head. Yeah. But then there's a little <laughs> bit more subtle way of saying, and this is literally two consonants, you're lying and you're a liar. Mm-hmm. That is different. If you're lying, I can then show you where your false statement is made. And we'll be talking about this on Wednesday night as well. But if I just say you're a liar. I'm saying you are the problem, not what you said. And therefore, people don't want to associate with someone who lies. They assume that you're lying. But if I say you are lying, I can then address the problem. But this is what this rhetoric does. It builds up the liars rather Mm -hmm. than the lie. That's right. It puts me in a camp of us versus them, right? And it shuts down your opposition. It makes it so that they cannot speak. Uh, Aristotle, when he talked about rhetoric or the art of convincing people, he said that there are three main tenets for rhetoric uh, of, of this art form. There are pathos, appealing to people's emotions. There is ethos, which is where we get our word ethics from, which is an appeal to ethical authority. And then there is logos, which is an appeal to logic, right? Which you see very much in absence today. That's right. So what he would say to this is he would say, this is an ethos type of an argument. It is defaming the ethics of the opponent, right? So if you're in a court of law and someone is giving testimony, you could either deal with their testimony or you could deal with their character. So in other words, you should doubt what they're saying because this is the kind of person that they are. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If they have a history of violence, then them denying to be violent does actually suggest we should look more into this evidence. That's right. But if you say that person committed violence before, therefore they committed it now, or as we're seeing in modern day culture, since men commit violence, therefore the accusation that this man was violent is in fact foundational for any legal system. Well, you see, we've made three different claims, three different groups of evidence, and three different types of argument. I'm attacking them for what they are. That is, of course, a pathos or an an ethos argument. I'm associating them with that based on what they do, what they believe. I'm condemning them based off of what they are with this very twisted logos argument, because men are violent, which is false, Mm -hmm. therefore. And then, of course, it's the evidence argument, the natural follow-through of the facts. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's provided here. They don't start with, and this is what we oftentimes emphasize, what I do on my YouTube channel as well, is if you want to know you're being manipulated, wait until they give a definition. If they never do, they just keep giving illustrations, you're being lied to. If they only tell you, well, this is like, and then they go on from that comparison into another story, and then from that story into a tangent to help explain these things better. They haven't explained anything because they haven't told you what the thing is. And I see this not just among a lot of hippie professors, but also a very credited ex-hippie professors as well. When they emphasize the point of saying, well, Christianity, it's, it's just like red flags. Note and pay attention to that. Absolutely. So let me finish up this, this article, and then we'll kind of get into what 
should our response be? How should we respond when someone uses this kind of assault against us? So um, this is, again, from the same article. Christian nationalism is emerging alongside... Now, again, listen to the language, okay? When, he said, when they're saying Christian nationalism is emerging alongside, what they're saying is you don't actually have to subscribe to any of these particularly to be a Christian nationalist, but association is condemnation. Because you're associated with Christian nationalism, you also bear the guilt of all these other things. So let's read what they are. Alongside some cases overlapping with other right-wing movements, such as conspiratorial QAnon, white supremacy, and denialism over COVID-19 and the 2020 election. Christian prayers and symbols featured prominently in and around the U.S. Capitol around January 6, 2021 in the insurrection there. Later on, we'll talk about that in a second. Later on, to my mind, white, no, this is white. Yeah. White Christian nationalism is really the threat. Conservative Christian themes are also playing a role in local election, including the blue states, although many proponents say the view, if not, uh, they, they view it not as nationalism, but as supporting their religious freedoms and values. So again, that's what they say. But that's not really the truth. They well, really are these kind of white supremacist people. Well, in the name of all of Grandfather Nurgle's blessings and blights, what is actually the solution then if the existence of white Christians is the problem? I, I genuinely don't know what to do with that information, even if a syllable of it was accurate. Right. So, going and again, back this to is the, the most fair article I found. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you want, if you want to, to again, and no, he's not poisoning the well. He's yeah. not saying, oh, all of these uh, racist, uh, anti, you know, Christian uh, rhetorics are just the sort of people you shouldn't listen to. Read them. Yeah. If you need the entertainment, just be prepared for that kind of entertainment. Yeah. Be, be like we said, we're we're trying to equip everyone who's listening to this to be able to sort through good and bad information. Because again, the the uh, solution to wading through our current cultural climate is not to indoctrinate from the other side, meaning let's isolate ourselves in a city on a hill and never interact with people who aren't Christians. No, no, no. We want to be prepared so that we could read something like this and allow it not to move us, not to move our heart before it moves our intellect. So It's it going to be annoying. That's right. But be informed or forewarned is to be forearmed is the idea. Absolutely. So um, that leads to the main question. How should... Christians respond to something like this? Because, again, there are some various ways. And you have to be careful here because it is a trap, as Admiral Akbar would say. It is a trap. You need to be careful because if you listen to all this and you say, well, I totally condemn all of the January 6th rioters and people like that. Hey, I do too. But I'm falling into the trap. How am I falling into the trap by doing that? Well, you associate with what they are falsely conflating. You're essentially stepping on one strand of the spider web and realizing it's all sticky. Mm-hmm. You're now in the spider web. But if, on the other hand, you start cutting off threads and realize this thing doesn't hold up under its own weight, you don't have to step into anything. If that image isn't graphic, you can point out what is the actual issue here. What's the one string that's actually string that I have to step on if I have to admit to anything? If the stepping on the string is meant to illustrate admitting a point, I have to make sure, now hold on, 
What do you mean by that? And it only takes that kind of question. And if they don't allow you for clarification, they aren't looking for anything apart from an emotional reaction. And they start making the condemnation, saying, oh, this wasn't a conversation at all. You just want to call me names. You're a Christo-fascist. Okay, let's play that game. You're a Christophobe. What's a Christophobe? What's a Christo-fascist? We just made up words so that we feel bad. That means nothing. Uh, Absolutely. So I, I think you brought out the best possible point. When someone is making these kind of inflammatory comments about you, um, the burden of proof is on them. So you cannot prove a negative. Mm-hmm. So if I say to you, prove you're not a racist, you, you can't do that. Right? Any, any definition you give them is going to be proof that you are a racist. You don't prove negatives. You prove positives. Now, the, the genius of this kind of rhetorical argument that they're using is they make you feel as though you have to defend yourself when they're the ones making the accusation. It's not for me to prove to you that I'm not a Christian nationalist. It's for you to prove to me that I am one. So the intent, again, is to shut up the opposing side. So what you're trying to do is get them to define your terms. You're saying I'm a Christian fascist, I mean, a Christo-fascist or a Christian nationalist. What does that mean? How do you define that? What have I done that is in keeping with Christo-fascism, that is in keeping with Christian nationalism? Why is that a danger? Why is that a threat? How do you, right? All these questions make that person define their terms. And if you're dealing with a serious person, they will give attempts to do that. If you're dealing with an unserious person, they won't. They will just continue with a barrage of, of hateful comments and with accusations. And that's when you know, as Sean said, this really isn't worth my time. Right. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and self-condemning. That is Titus 3, verse 10. Give it two good old tries, man, to get someone to define their terms. If they're not, they're a divisive person. You're not going to gain anything by talking to someone like that or going down those rabbit holes with them. All right. So let us know if that helps, I guess, stabilize the issue. Don't be bothered if someone calls you names if they aren't true, if you're being called out or corrected by something, or you can take that little kernel of truth in there and get into a better conversation than all the more for it. But say someone comes along and says, man, you you hate Islam. And it's true, I hate what it's doing to people. But if you say, oh, you hate all Muslims, well, that's a different conversation entirely. I love Muslims, and I want them to be in heaven with me, but I know that Sharia is not the way. If, on the other hand, someone says, why do you hate Islam? Well, let me give the verses from Tafsir, Sunnah, and Hadith. But if, on the other hand, we're going into conversations that misrepresent you, that accuse you, that from their foundation are assuming you have to bear responsibility for something they either A, can't prove, or B, that you haven't done, usually both, that is where the conversation needs to continue, not where it ends, and certainly where it uh, unfortunately doesn't begin a lot. So make sure that that's how these conversations go, that you learn how to talk to people as well as what to talk to them about. And you're going to find, again, I came into this broadcast, I didn't read the articles, you read them to me, but I know enough of how to talk that I can think these things through. As they say in algebra, memorize the formulas, the numbers come later. That's how we should deal with this. So with that being said, anything more to add before we go out to our questions? Let's do it.
All right, we included the elder's uh, question about Christian fascism. Names mean nothing. Here's a question from Holly who wants to know, why is the Old Testament longer than the New? Well, it's because the New Testament covers about uh, maybe one one-thousandth of the time the Old Testament yeah. covers. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to just go off of writer to writer, from Malachi to Moses, and vice versa. That's about 1,100 years of history, from 1450 to 400, 600-ish, depending on who you're talking to. That's a lot of information, and that's a lot of things to set up that the New Testament fulfills. And the funny thing is, as I'm sure you're aware, Holly, when you get something fulfilled, you just have to show it. You don't have to explain this is what's happening, unless it's really, really important, in which the New Testament does in places, but other times it doesn't. It just says, this is what's fulfilled, what was said by Isaiah of the prophet, and it doesn't go off to give you the historical context. It assumes you've read the, uh, what was it, 27th book before you got to the 40th. Mm -hmm. That's the point that's being made. So if we ask the question, how much time did the New Testament cover? Give or take about 60 years, if you note the narrative from the time of Jesus' birth all the way to the, uh, I guess, appeal from Paul to go to prison in Rome. Some would argue as well from 90 because of the leap of when First John, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation were written, but the point still stands. The events in history take place over about 60 years, and if I have to write a memoir that long, that's going to be thick. But if I'm writing a memoir of a lot of people <laughs> over a long period of time. Yeah, starting it's, from literally the beginning of creation. Yeah, and even then, yeah. if you just note, this is what Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, great. But note, Moses from Mount Sinai all the way to Malachi, that's a lot of information. Yeah. That's a lot of time to cover. That's why one book's longer than the other, not because one's more important than the other or one's inferior to the other. It's just more data. So, anything more to add? Uh, no, it's good. All right, a uh, question from Yari. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Some say it was because of their homosexual activity, some for their lack of hospitality, others for their pride. Uh, which is it? Well, does it have to be one? No, no, it doesn't have to be one. And uh, we get a pretty good understanding that it was a lot of stuff, yeah. right? They were they were just very, very corrupt in basically every conceivable way. So even when people say lack of hospitality, we're not talking about people who are just a little stingy. <laughs> You know, a little, a little stingy on you know bread and, and water for their uh, transigent strangers that come in town. We're talking about people who, when they saw a stranger come in town, their first instinct was, let's put them in their place. And how do we do that? By forcibly raping them until they understand their position in the bigger picture. Which, by so, the way, we don't only have documentation for in the book of Genesis, chapter 18 and 19. We also have documentation outside of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh boy. Yeah, not, not great. So, yeah, we're talking about an incredibly debaucherous culture. Uh, one that, again, when, when you look at the nations of Canaan, there are so many different uh, ways of looking at the book of Genesis to see that God wasn't—it's not like they were ignorant to these things. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They had many people surrounding them that were telling them that this behavior was wrong. And Melchizedek's just down the street. <laughs> exactly. So they, they actually had a, a wealth— of information to tell them that what they were doing was inappropriate and wrong, and to whom much is given, much is required. So God judged them appropriately for their behavior and for their cultural failings. Yeah, but note, if someone tries to isolate it and say, God never condemned Sodom and Gomorrah for its homosexual practices, it was their inhospitality, how they went about it. 
Okay, but if, do we have a positive example of what you're trying to prove? Well, no. Let's then stick with that information. It includes that. It's not excluding that. Uh, question from Lynn who wants to know, could you give your interpretation, fair premise, of Revelation 15 and verse 8, when no one was able to enter the temple because of the smoke? Um, was it God weeping over the lost, those that took the mark, and needed to grieve alone over them because it pointed out the seven vials full of wrath was about to be poured out, and she gives the passage. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lynn. Yeah, it's an interesting passage. We'll be getting into it in the next couple weeks. But the point of emphasis is obviously let's make sure, and this is what you were doing when it was referring to God weeping, that is, I believe, a part of it. But what we're given in the text is because the smoke of the temple in reference, by the way, to the Old Testament, that's a direct reference to when the temple was dedicated. It's an emphasis of what has been described all the way up until, not verse 8, but verses 1 through 7 as well, Mm -hmm. that the wrath of God is going to be manifested. And there's two times, this is oftentimes the explanation, that we as human beings generally want to be left alone when we're angry or when we're sad. In this case, I think there's room for both, not just because of what we set up in the chapter itself, but what we know about God. Because if we look back in the Old Testament, does it say that God delights in the death of the wicked and that the wicked should never turn from his way and live? No, Ezekiel 33.11 says the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So if we see God about to pour out his wrath undiluted and even then sparsed out among seven plagues, he doesn't have to do that. That is not something he does or has been doing eagerly. That's been something he's been delaying up until this moment, and even then he doesn't like it. That's an inference of God's character. But if we go in the text itself, what does it say is the reason why the smoke's being poured out? Uh, Yeah, so let's go to verse—well, verse 1 talks about uh, how we're moving into—we're transitioning into a new set of judgments. So those of you guys who are unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, there are three sets of seven judgments. So it begins with the set of seal judgments— and that transitions into the set of trumpet judgments, and that transitions into the set of bull judgments. And each set kind of has an exponential rise in deadliness, if you want to put it that way, to, to a huge degree. So we are in the final set of, ra- of the wrath of God prior to him coming back. So we're towards the latter part of the book, and that's what's happening right now. We are now transitioning from the trumpet judgments, which were already pretty radical, into the bull judgments, which are just devastating, right? Absolutely devastating to the world. So in verse 5, it says, After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven, was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. All right, so... Is, A lot of Old Testament references there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not uh, the earthly temple. So remember the temple that was built by uh, first the tabernacle by Moses and then transitioned into the temple by Solomon, and then later on when it was rebuilt uh, in the New Testament, you the temple was to be a reflection of something that Moses saw in heaven. So he didn't just come up with a design. God's like, this is what my house looks like, and I want you to make a representation of it on earth. 
right? So the temple was always a picture of heaven touching earth. Now, in this section, we're not talking about the earthly temple. We are talking about the heavenly temple. We're talking about God's home. And he has, just like the temple represents the Holy of Holies, which represents where God dwells, this temple that is being referenced would be God's dwelling place, right, where he's enthroned in heavenly spaces. So while these plagues are being prepared by these angels, it says that the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, the smoke, uh, I'm sorry, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So as Sean said, it's very reasonable to think that the smoke is a representation not only of God's anger at humanity, but the sheer power and force that God inhabits, and also uh, his grief and sadness over what's going on on the earth. So yeah, it's, it's a very... borderline quotation of when Israel was doing the whole golden calf incident mm-hmm. and Moses' intercession as the wrath of God was being poured out on Israel, and he literally had to have Aaron fill the center with smoke and go sprint before the <laughs> wall of fire essentially hit them. Yeah. So you have an instance where, as you said, Sean, it seems like God is, in a sense, giving himself space, right? Giving himself time, which I think is very cool whenever we read about God. Sometimes people today think of God as this impersonal force out there, this it, you know, this deistic kind of uh, notion where God is impersonal. He just kind of controls things, and he's not really touched by anything emotionally. Here we see that that's just not true. The God that we serve is very personal, and therefore he experiences emotions just like you and me. The difference between God and us is that he never acts in an inappropriate or unrighteous manner as a result of being taken over by his emotions. So in other words, he's never um, impertinent. He's never someone who just reacts impulsively. He is someone who thinks things through and always does the right thing, but he does experience emotions, and he does uh, express those emotions in various ways. In this particular instance, not only is he expressing his emotion of wrath, his anger, his righteous and justified anger towards the behavior of mankind and the rejection of his son through judging the world, but also through removing himself for a time while this wrath is being poured out so that the angels can do their thing and he can kind of stew a little bit, kind of soak and saturate in what he's experiencing, which is fine. All right, so let us know if that helps you out. And again, our interpretation, you can say, oh, well, that's just your opinion or that opinion. Make sure that any handling of the text is supported by other passages of Scripture because it follows the same context, and any inferences to motive are supported by what we can actually know about God's character. That's why I think it's not just an interpretation. I think it's a sound one. But if you hear people who say otherwise, it's not a salvation issue. Just make sure they give the at least the same amount of reasons and reasoning. So, um, question from Isaiah <laughs> wants to know, is it true that the Egyptians drowned in only three feet of water? How deep was the Red see at the time. Thank you. Yeah, Isaiah, that's not a Bible question. That's a clarification on a joke that was made about a bad Bible objection. So let's take three steps back here so we're not addressing an illustration of a misrepresentation mocking the ridiculousness of the bad explanation that was trying to write away a miracle. (laughs) When this story came out, it was, of course, in reference to a very well-known and beloved Christian apologist. His name's not relevant, but if you ask, we can give it to you. He was giving a presentation on the evidence for the Exodus. The individual who was going to the college at the time uh, said, I lost my faith because this professor 
showed to me that the Egyptians, or the rather the crossing of the Red Sea, wasn't a miracle at all. It was the Reed Sea. It was a mistranslation. And the Reed Sea, you know, during the drier months and so forth, uh, is basically just this marshland. They only crossed in three feet of water. And the joke is, your professor is a great man of faith. So what do you think mean by that? And he says, well, you believe that the Egyptian army was drowned in three feet of water? And of course, that's the ridiculous ploy. The explanation of the Red Sea crossing is impossible without divine intervention being a miracle. So what the atheist professor had to do was to misrepresent history and all the documentation and reaction involved in there, but realizing he had left out a key detail that the Egyptian army pursued Israel and that we can verify that as well. Check out patterns of evidence in the Exodus. There was a, for whatever reason, a very uh, long lull in Egypt's military activity Hmm. following the excursions of the Habaru, which we can note in text available for viewing in the British Museum, uh, who are roaming Canaanites that stuck in the mountains, exactly like the Book of Judges describes them, going down but leaving the civilian territories alone, only attacking military cities, like the Book of Joshua said. But the point being made is this. It's talking about an explanation trying to dismiss the Red Sea as a miracle. Why? Because there aren't miracles, only God does miracles and there is no God. So there can be only a natural explanation. This is what I can infer into the text. Well, here's the problem. The Red Sea is just as deep as it is today. It is a large body of water bordering from the Middle East, as we know it, to the border of Eastern Africa. So when we're asking about this massive body of water that essentially put Israel in a I guess a rock in a wet place in this case, Uh, the Egyptian army was going to wipe them out, and Moses told them, hey, don't be afraid, God's going to deliver us. And then showing he was still human, he's like, right? (laughs) Are you going to do that? And he said, take your staff, go and do what I tell you to do. He told him to stretch out his arms, and the uh, wind from the east blew apart the waters, and they crossed on dry land. Notice, not marshy land, not on uh, that particular time or season, Then, when the presence of the Lord blocked the Egyptian army from traveling until everyone had crossed over, I know Prince of Egypt makes it kind of close and dramatic, it wasn't. The moment that they tried to follow in through, shows the hardness of their hearts, they were drowned. God stopped the wind that was causing the waters to part, and then they drowned in the ocean. Now, we can verify that kind of event historically, not with the comedic Babylon Bee article where on a carved rock in the Middle East it says Moses was here, but we have to look at the surrounding events, circumstances, and political climate of Egypt and ask, does that explanation? Does that event match other facts? If Egypt went on to uh, conquer all of northern Africa and the Jews said that their military disappeared overnight, that'd be a problem. But if it goes on to verify events not only involving during but before, like the lamentation of the shepherd verifying the plagues of Egypt, we have some solid ground. But here's the point. When we're asked the question about the Reed Sea, or these humorous explanations. Our question shouldn't be, well, where did that explanation making fun of a bad explanation, which was a lie put forward by a bad assumption by a false professor? That's not the conversation. It's what does the text actually say? What did the text say when it involves the Red Sea? Well, 
It was the Red Sea. <laughs> what was that understood to mean and to be in the ancient world? Well, not a lot of room for interpretation because we are told in the excruciating detail, pun intended, the details of their travelings, where they entered in in what is known today as Saudi Arabia, the Sinai Peninsula, and all of that. Now, there's some questions as to where exactly in the wilderness of sin did they settle, where is Mount Sinai, we're not sure, but we know where they crossed, where they traveled, where they stopped, where they turned around, and we can pretty much know beyond a reasonable doubt that all of the events pertaining to what we, and this is key, can test, check out. What we can't, we can't. But here's the point. When we're asked the question about, oh, so God drowned the Egyptians in a sea three feet deep. No, the joke was it couldn't have been a sea three feet deep because that doesn't happen. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, well, parting a sea with freak wind incidents doesn't happen either, unless we have some outside intervention, someone who can control the wind, someone who can control the water, who can be rationally understood and explained as such by introducing those things from nothing with a word. Just a thought. But if, on the other hand, I give too much ground, like what we started with, and say, okay, so the atheist professor who made up that explanation because of the assumption that, in fact, the God of the Bible can't exist, well, let's uh, pretend that that's true. Now let's uh, see if we can prove the Bible does, in fact, bear true, even in their bad explanations. That's bad logic. Let's go back to what the truth actually is in the matter, not the unproven assumptions or assertions of people who are making bad assumptions. That's also why we don't support things like the documentary hypothesis, because it was based on a false assumption that written language didn't exist at the time of Moses. It's also why we don't espouse things like these bizarre handlings of certain passages, because they have to make assumptions into the text, like the gap theory that doesn't support the text that wasn't espoused by anybody until way later, and for really very strange reasons, not scientific ones, let's make sure that we stick to what the text actually says, not what people who don't believe the text have assumed it says because they want to prove it a lie. That's not our goal. That shouldn't be it. Anything more to add? All right. Um, having trouble with this one, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, why didn't the disciples believe that Judas was the betrayer when Jesus told them outright that this is the man who has betrayed me, he who dips his cup with me. He was dipped his bread. You know, this is the one who slapped me in the face. Gospel of John, Jesus literally pointed out to them. He goes out and says, oh, Judas, uh, good old Judas. He probably went out to uh, give something to the poor, right? Or uh, to get supplies for the uh, rest of the ceremony. Jesus literally just told him he was the betrayer, so why didn't they believe Jesus? Yeah, so we actually see this throughout the gospel accounts uh, in various ways. But this is definitively why, you, when you read the Gospels, it reads like a history book. It does not read like a myth, because it is very incisive about how human beings actually behave. So we as human beings, we think that we're very logical and rational, and if we just had the right data, we would make the right decisions. All evidence to the contrary. People do not believe what is true. They believe what they want to be true. This is what's called confirmation bias, and we all struggle with it. The more that we can be purified in God and the more that we can grow in wisdom, the more we can tamp that down and fight it. But the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he actually says that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There is a bend within me that wants certain things to be true because of a 
basic a bias. There's some grand reason why I want this to be true, and so I make it true utilizing facts and reason. One of the things that the apostles wanted to be true was that Jesus was the conquering Messiah that they had been raised to believe he would be. They all believed that the Messiah was a political figure, one who would come in and reestablish Israel as the center of the world and kick out the Romans and establish this amazing kingdom that was promised in Isaiah and these other prophets. Jesus will do that. He just wasn't going to do that in his first coming. But they were so... Uh, unbelievably biased towards this belief system, then no matter how many times Jesus directly told them, you're wrong, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm going to be crucified. Three times. Yep. Didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. They're like, this has to be, yeah, this is a parable. They're like trying to figure out, there's got to be a deep meaning of what Jesus means. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die. Like literally, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to be betrayed. This what guy. does, what does I'm going to die mean though, right? They're, they're trying to like spiritualize Jesus' statements. And then when Jesus points out a betrayer, once again, they were so adherent to the idea that A, the Messiah was going to be political, but B, that they were selected because they were just better than your average person. So, Which one of us is greatest in the kingdom? I know, I'll have my mom try and bargain yeah. with Jesus. <laughs> so obviously they're not going to believe when Jesus says, like, one of you is my betrayer. And when they're saying, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? The reason why they're saying that is because in their mind they were just rejecting it. They're rejecting that it could ever possibly be true. They really did believe that Jesus was speaking metaphorically, that there's something else going on, there's something symbolic going on in his speech. I mean, they really didn't believe what was happening until after Jesus is arrested. You could see in Peter's reaction, as well as the other apostles, that they're in a state of shock when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was just something that they were not anticipating at all. So this is something that's just inherent in humanity. We have a tendency to see the truth that we want as opposed to the truth that is, and we need to be careful about that, and we need to receive, as Paul puts in Second Thessalonians, a love of the truth. We want things to be true because they're true, not because we want them to be true. So that's, that's what is happening there, Nina. Or because we are right, and we want to be proud in that fact. That, right. That's another thing we can fall into, speaking for myself. Uh, and then yet another follow-through, when Peter struck off the ear of the high priest, was he acting out of anger for Judas's betrayal? No, Nina, if you want further details on this, we actually just covered this in our Sunday uh, morning studies. This two is Two Sundays ago, yeah. Two Sundays ago. This was on May 22nd, uh, going through Luke chapter 22, where we emphasize in detail the mindset behind the Apostle Peter and when he was striking the ear of the high priest's servant, Malachus, all of the stuff that was going on in his head. It wasn't anger towards Judas, it was a desire to die, mm. because obviously you're one man taking on a large detachment from the high priest guard, and Romans among them as well. You're not going to obviously come out of that, even if you are John Weak or something, right? You're trying to make yourself a martyr, but Jesus didn't let him go through with that. He said, put your sword into the sheath, I can protect myself. Notice not, forgive Judas. He isn't mentioned once. He says, put your sword in the sheath, it must happen thus. That's in reference to Matthew's parallel account, but note this point. Uh, if we infer all these emotional details, not in the text, we need to make sure they're in support, like we said with the Revelation 15 passage, of what we already know about God. Those aren't in the text. 
nothing about Peter's anger. All that we have in his later denial is grief because he was putting his mouth, what, was it, he was putting his uh, forearm, I guess, where his mouth and where his mind ultimately couldn't meet up. The point being made is that, though, Nina. Just be careful with those inferences unless the text or prior text or post-text clarify that as such. If we read those things into it, we're going to end up either taking away false points or wasting time that could be actually spent in God's Word. I think that's what the goal is in all of this. Um, got a little bit of time, about two minutes before the music cuts us off. Clarification from Adrian, who wants to know if it's a good idea to have a working definition of nationalism. We did clarify that, and if you want to listen to last week's broadcast, again, the time of the broadcast was on May 24th, 2022. Uh, That would have been aired on the 25th if you're listening on Reach Radio. Feel free to listen to the first uh, 28 minutes, I think, of the broadcast where we made a fair case for what nationalism actually is and if that falls in line with the Christian worldview. But to your question, yeah, it is important to know what things mean. It is good. Uh, This is something I'm actually doing research on right now. Um, There's a very famous French philosopher named Michel Foucault, poisonous, poisonous man. Uh, He might be responsible for a lot of the things that are wrong with the world right now, but he had this really twisted view of truth in which he believed that all truth was a power game. So he might, I'm not sure yet, but I actually think he is the originator of knowledge is power, but he did not mean it the way that we mean it today. What he meant is those who have power create knowledge. Not if you want to gain power and prestige in the world, you must become knowledgeable. It's, no, 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 there is no, he was a big proponent of the fact that all truth is subjective, and therefore he believed those in power subjectively enforce their views of truth on everybody else, on the masses. Who inspired Nietzsche, who inspired Hitler, who inspired... Exactly. get the point. Exactly. And so in his worldview, it's not wrong to enforce your view of truth on the world, but the person who's in charge should enforce what he would call the correct view of truth onto the world. So in other words, get the big guns and you top down enforce your ideology on the world because there is a correct way to see things. Uh, Very Marxist, very anti-logical for sure. So in his view, one of the ways that you can control people is through controlling the language. So one of the reasons why we're so emphatic about this and why, again, we ask those questions, what do you mean by that, is the way that they're gaining power is through defining the terms, and that's how they win the argument. All right, and then uh, got about five seconds, but Nina wants to know if Judas always had it in his heart to betray Jesus, or did something go wrong? Judas decided to betray Jesus. Neither. Um, Satan put it into his heart, and because he didn't have a working relationship with Jesus, we shall by the fruits of his life that, uh, well... He didn't seek the redemption that he needed, so let's just make sure that we note him as a cautionary tale. Peter betrayed Jesus three times more than Judas did. The point being made was he waited for restoration and reconciliation. Judas did not. That's what we should take away from it. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.